Book Four, Chapter Thirty Four of The Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bud, Then the Deadly Flower, Part One. You who have read thus far will care little for the legalities which followed the events just related, but you may wish to know to a fuller extent some of the facts in Emmetrude Taylor's life which led to this tragic end of all her hopes. Her story is twofold, the portion connecting her with Carlton Roberts being entirely disassociated from that which made her the debtor of Antoinette Duclos. Let me tell the latter first, as it precedes the other, and tell it in episode. Two girls stood at one end of a long walk of immemorial yews. At the other could be seen the advancing figure of a man, young, alert, English-clad, but unmistakably foreign. They were schoolgirls and bosom friends, he their instructor in French. The walk one attached to a well-known seminary. When they had entered this walk, it had been empty. Now it held for one of them, and possibly for the other, too, a world of joy and promise, the world of seventeen, innocent and unthinking. Neither of them had known her own heart, much less that of her fellow. But when in the face of that approach, eye met eye, with an askance look of eager question, revelation came, crimsoning the cheeks of both, and marking an epoch in either life. Noble of heart and tender toward each other, they were yet human. Arm fell from arm, and, with an equally spontaneous movement, they turned to search each the other's countenance, not for betrayal, for that had already been made, but for those physical charms or marks of mental superiority which might attract the eye or win the heart of a man of the ideality of this one. Alas, these gifts, for gifts they are, were much too unequally distributed between these two to render the balance at all even. Emmetrude was handsome, Antoinette was not. Emmetrude had, besides, what even without beauty would have made her conspicuous to the eye, the figure of a goddess and the air of a queen. But Antoinette was small, and had to feel secure and in a happy mood to show the excellence of her mind and the airy quality of her wit. Then. Emmetrude had money and could dress, while Antoinette, who was dependent upon an English uncle for everything she possessed, wore clothes so plain that but for their exquisite neatness one would never dream that she came from French ancestry and that ancestry noble. Yes, she had that advantage. Rank was hers, but not the graces which should accompany it. More than that, she had nothing with which to support it. Better be of the yeoman class like Emmetrude, and smile like a duchess granting favors, or so she thought, poor girl, as her meek regard passed from the friend whose affections she had thus acknowledged to the man whose approbation would make a goddess of her, too. He was coming, not with his usual indifferent swing, but eagerly, joyously, as though this moment meant something to him, too. She knew it did. Small memories rushing upon her made no doubt of that, 
But why? Because of Ermatrude, or because of herself? Alas, she could recall nothing which would answer that. They were much together. He had scarcely ever seen them separate. It might be either. Hardly alive from suspense, she watched him coming, coming. In a moment, he would be upon them. On which would his eyes linger? That would tell the tale. In an anguish of ungovernable shyness, she slipped behind the ample figure of her friend till only her fluttering skirt betrayed her presence. Perhaps she was saved something by this move, perhaps not. She did not see the beam of joy sparkling in his eye as he greeted Ermatrude, but she could not but mark the heaviness of his step as he passed them by and wandered away into the shadows. And that she understood. Ermatrude had not smiled upon him. To him, the moment had brought pain. It was enough. Now she knew. But why had not Ermatrude smiled? A dormitory lighted only by the moon. Two beds close together, in one a form of noble proportions, and in the other the meager figure of a girl, almost buried from sight among pillows and huddled up blankets. Both are quiet save for an occasional shudder, which shakes the bed of the latter. Ermatrude lies like the dead, though the moonlight falls upon her face, blanching it to the aspect of marble. Even her lashes rest moveless on her cheek. But she is not sleeping. She is listening, listening to the sobs, almost inaudible, which now and then escape from the beloved one at her side. As they grow fainter and fainter, and gradually die away altogether, till stillness reigns through the whole dormitory, she rouses, and bending forward on her elbow, looks long and lovingly at the wet brow of her sleeping mate. She then sinks back again into rigidity, with a low moan, ending in the whispered words, He does not love, not yet. A slight thing will turn him. Did I not see him glance back twice, and both times at her? The look with which she greeted him was so wonderful. A village street in Brittany, a parish church in the distance, two women bidding each other farewell, amid a group of wedding guests, gay as the heavens are blue. Au revoir was the whisper breathed by the bride into the ear of the other. Au revoir, my Ermatrude. May you have a happy year in Switzerland. Au revoir, little madame. You will be happy, I know, in those United States to which you are going. And the tears stood in the eyes of both. You will write, I will write. But the bride did not seem quite satisfied. Glancing about and finding her young husband busy with his adieu, she drew her friend apart and softly murmured, There's something I must say. Something I must know before the sea divides us. You remember that day we all left school, and you went home, and I came to Brittany? Ermatrude, Achille tells me that on that day he sought the whole house over for you till he came upon you in one of the classrooms. And that you, whom I had sometimes seen so sad, were very gay, and told him between laughing and crying, that you were bidding a solemn farewell to all the nooks and corners of the old seminary, because your fiancé awaited you at home, 
and there would be no coming back. I meant my music. He did not know that, Ermatrude, and here she laid her hands upon the other's shoulders, drawing back as she did so to look earnestly up into her face. Was that done for me? They were too near for anything but the truth to pass from eye to eye. Ermatrude tried to laugh and uttered a quick, no, no. But the little bride was not deceived. Again upon her face there appeared that wonderful look of hers, which made her face for the moment verily beautiful, and unclasping her hands, she threw them about the other's neck, whispering in awed tones, You loved him, loved him too. Then after a moment of silence, dear to both their hearts, she drew back to give her friend one other look, and quietly said, His heart is mine now, Ermatrude, wholly and truly mine, and so you would have it be, I am sure. Life looks fair to me, and very sweet. But however fair, however sweet, that life is yours if ever you want it, and when you want it. The time may come, one never knows, when I can pay you back this debt. Till then, let there be perfect trust and perfect love between us. Give me your hand upon it, not just your lips, for I speak as men speak when they mean to keep their word. Their eyes met, their hands clasped, and then the bridegroom drew away his bride, and Ermatrude turned with bowed head and glistening eyes to enter upon the new life awaiting her in ways she had yet to tread. The second series of episodes opens with the meeting of a man and a woman on a rustic bridge spanning a Swiss chasm. They are strangers to each other, yet both instinctively pause, and a flush of intuitive feeling dyes the cheeks of each. The eternal, ever-recurring miracle has happened. He sees woman for the first time, though he thought himself in love before, and had wondered thus far in an effort to forget. So likewise with her. She had had her fancies, or rather her one fancy, but when in strolling along this road ahead of her party, she saw rising between her and the glorious landscape, which had hitherto filled her eye, the fine masculine head and perfect figure of Carlton Roberts. This fancy floated from her mind like the veriest thistledown, leaving it free to expand in fuller hopes and deeper joys than visit many women, even when they think they love. Alas, why in that instant of mutual revelation had not the further grace been given them of quick catastrophe, shutting the door upon a future of which neither could then dream or sense the coming doom? It was not to be. He passed, she passed, and for a time the look they gave each other was all but the world had been glorified for them both, and destiny waited. Good looks, yes, but nothing else. Very ordinary connections, very. A little money, true. Her uncle, whom, by the way, I judge you have not seen, will leave her a few thousands, but meanwhile he is a fixture, will not leave her or let her leave him, which is a misfortune, since in a social way he is simply impossible. No sort of match for you, Roberts. Cut and run while there is time. 
That's my advice to you, given in the most friendly spirit. Thank you. As I have just but met Miss Taylor, don't you think such advice is a little premature? No, I don't. She is a woman who must be loved or left, that's all. You've heard me. Did Carlton Roberts heed these words? No. What man in the thrall of his first romance ever did? You love me, Emmetrude? I love you, Carlton. For a day, for a month, or for a year, he smiled. Forever, she answered. That's a long time, he murmured, with his eyes on a little clock hanging in the shop window, before which they had stopped in one of their infrequent walks together. A long time. That foolish little clock will beat out the hours of its short life and go the way of all things before we shall hardly have entered upon the souls forever. That clock will last our lifetime, Carlton. Afterward, love will not be counted by hours. As she said this, she turned her face his way, and he saw it in its full flower with the light of heaven upon it. In later years, he may have forgotten the emotion of that moment. But they were the purest, the freest from earthly stain that he was ever destined to know. I will love you forever, he whispered. That little clock shall be my witness. And he drew her into the shop. Cuckoo. Emmetrude glanced up. The clock hung on her wall. Oh, she murmured, each hour it will speak to me of him and his words. Then softly, like one a dream in paradise, I love but thee, and thee will I love to eternity. Such was the event to her. What was it to him? Let's see. A hotel room, a view of Pilatus, but with its top lost in enveloping clouds. Seated before it with a pen in hand and above a sheet of paper, Carlton Roberts eyes these clouds but does not see them. He is hunting in his brain for words, and they do not come. Why? His mother's name is on the page, and he has only to write that she has been quite correct in her judgment as to the unfitness of the marriage he had had in mind. That youth should mate with youth, that if she could see the glorious young girl whose acquaintance he had made here, she would be satisfied with his new choice which promised him the fullest happiness. Why then is she yet blank and a hesitating hand, when all it had to do was to write? Who can tell? Man knows little of himself or of the conflicting passions which sway him this way or that, even when to the outward eye, and possibly to the inner one as well, action looks easy. Did he feel, without its reaching the point of knowledge, that this mother of keenest expectation and highest hope would not be satisfied with what this charming but undeveloped girl of middle-class parentage would bring him? Or was there deep down in his own undeveloped nature a secret nerve, alive to ambitions yet unnamed, to hopes not yet formulated, which warned him to think well before he spoke the irrevocable words linking a chain which, though twined with roses, was nevertheless a chain, which nothing on earth should have the power to break. He never sounded his soul for an answer to this question, 
but when he rose, the paper was still blank. A letter had not been written. I do not like secrecy. Only for a little while, Emmetrude, my mother is difficult. I would prepare her. And uncle? What of uncle? He made me take an oath today. An oath? That I would not leave him while he lived. And you could do that? I could do nothing else. He's a sick man, Carlton. The doctors shake their heads when they leave him. He will not live a year. A year, but that's an eternity. Can you wait? Can I wait a year? He loves me, and I owe everything to him. Next week we go to Nice. These are days of parting for you and me, Carlton. Parting? What word more cruel? She saw that it shook him, and held her breath for his promise that she should not be long alone. But it did not come. He was taking time to think. She hardly understood his doing this. Surely his mother must be very difficult, and he a most considerate son. She knew he loved her, perhaps never, with a more controlling passion than at this moment of palpitating silence. As she smiled, he caught her to his breast. We have a week yet, he cried, and left her hurriedly, precipitately. It was their last ride, and they had gone far, too far, Ermatrude thought, for a day so chilly and a sky so threatening. They had entered gorges, they had skirted mountain streams, had passed a village, left a ruined tower behind, and were still facing eastward, as if Lucerne had no further claims upon them, and the world was all their own. As the snows on the higher peaks burst upon their view, she made an attempt to stop the seeming flight. My uncle, she said, he will be counting the hours. Let us go back. Then Carlton Roberts spoke. Another mile, he whispered, not because he feared being overheard by the driver, but because love's note is instinctively low. You are cold. We shall find there a fire and dinner. And listen, Emmetrude, a minister ready to unite us. We are going back man and wife. Carlton. Yes, dear, it is quite understood. Letters are urging my return to New York. Your uncle is holding you here. I cannot face an uncertain separation. I must feel that you are mine beyond all preadventure. Must be able to think of you as my wife, and that will hold us both and make it proper for you to come to me if I cannot come to you the moment you are free to go where you will. But why this long ride, this faraway spot? Why couldn't a minister be found in Lucerne? Is our marriage to be as secret as our engagement? Is that what you wish, Carlton? Yes, dear, for a little while, just a little while, till I have seen my mother and rid our way of every obstacle to complete happiness. It will be better. When one has promised to love forever, what are a few weeks or months? Make me happy, dear. You have it in your power to do so. Happy. When once I can whisper wife, the world will not hold a happier man than I. Did she yield because of her own great longing? No. It was by that phrase he caught her. The world will not hold a happier man than I. Mountains, icy peaks, 
with sides heavy with snow, and so near. Almost they seemed to meet across the narrow valley. She gave them one quick glance. Then her eyes and her heart became absorbed in what she could see of this alpine village, holding up its head in the eternal snows like an edelweiss on the edge of a glacier. It was to be the scene of her one great act in life, the spot she was entering as a maiden and would leave as a wife. What other spot would ever be so interesting? To notice every detail of house and church would not take long. It was such a small village, and the streets were so few, and the people, why, she could count them. Afterward, she found that the exact number and the difference in color of the short line of timbered houses stretching between them and the church were imprinted on her brain. But she did not know it at the time, for her attention was mainly fixed upon the people when once she had seen them. For there was a strangeness in their looks and actions she did not understand, all the more that it seemed to have nothing to do with either Carlton or herself. It was not fear they showed, not exactly, though consternation was not lacking in their aspect, so strangely similar in all, whether they were men or women, or whether they stood in groups in the street or came out singly on the doorstep to glance about and listen, though there seemed to be nothing to listen to, for the air was preternaturally still. Carlton, Carlton, she asked, as he came to lift her to the ground. See those people, how oddly they act. The whole town is in the street. What is the matter? Nothing, except that if we do not hasten, we shall have to return unmarried. The minister is waiting for us. What, in the church? Yes, dear, we are a little late. She took his arm, and though they were a fine couple, and the event was an almost unprecedented one in that remote village, only a few followed them. The rest hung around their homes or gazed with indecision at the mountains or up and down along the empty roads. Wilt thou have this woman? The ceremony had proceeded thus far, and all seemed well, when, with a rush and a cry, a dozen people burst into the building. The snows are moving, rang up the aisles, in accents of mad terror. Save yourselves. Then came the silence of emptiness. Every soul had left the church, save the three people before the pulpit. An avalanche, and the ceremony was yet incomplete. Ermatrude never forgot Carlton Roberts' look. Doubtless, he never forgot hers. Meanwhile, the minister spoke. There's a chance for escape. Take it. The good God will pardon you. But the bridegroom stood firm, and the bride shook her head. Not till the words are said, which makes us man and wife, declared Carlton Roberts, unless, and here his perfect courtesy manifested itself, even in this crisis of life and death, you feel it is your duty to carry what assistance you can to the saving of your frightened flock. God must save my flock, said the minister, with a solemn glance upward. I am where my duty places me and calmly as though the pews were filled with guests, and joy attended the ceremony instead of apprehended doom, he proceeded with a rite. Wilt thou have this man? 
The glad I will leaped bravely from Ermentrude's lips, but it was lost in loud calls and shrieks from without, mingled with that sound, terrible to all who hear, impossible to describe, of the might of the hills made audible in this down-rushing mass, now halting, now gathering fresh momentum, but coming, always coming, till its voice, but now a threat, swells into thunder in which all human cries are lost. And only from the movement of the minister's lips can this couple see that the words which make them one are being spoken. Then comes the benediction, and with the falling of those holy hands a headlong rush into the open air, a vision of flying forms here, there, and everywhere, men staggering under foolish burdens, women on their knees, with arms lifted to heaven, or flung around their babes, hope lost under the bowing mountain, and in the midst of it all, plain to the view of all, the stranger's horse and carriage, which, standing there, stamped with undying honor these terrified villagers, who had seen and not touched them, though death had them by the hair. Quick, quick, you mother there with the child, get in, get in. There is room here for one more. But another got the place. The driver, reeling as he ran, sprang for the empty seat and hung there between the wheels as the horse plunged and tore away to safety, just as the great mass with its weight of gathered boulders and uprooted forests crashed into the final doom upon that devoted village, burying it from sight as though it had never been. To safety, yes, for two of them, the other, struck by a flying stone, fell in the road and was covered in a trice. So close were they to destruction's edge at this moment of headlong flight. Not till the painted towers encircling Lucerne had come again into sight did the newly wedded pair find words or make the least attempt to speak. Then Carlton kissed his bride, and for a moment love was triumphant. Was it triumphant enough to lead him to acknowledge their marriage? She looked anxiously in his face to see, and finally she asked, How much of this are we to tell, Carlton? All about the catastrophe, but nothing more, he answered. And while her heart retained its homage, the light in her eyes was veiled. Married, but not acknowledged. Would it not have been better if the avalanche had overwhelmed them? She almost thought so, till bending, he murmured in her ear, I shall follow you soon. Do you think I could go on living without you? Why so thoughtful, Emmetrude? You are not quite yourself today. Uncle is very ill. The doctors say he may not live a month. And does that grieve you? A yes was on her lips, but she did not utter it. Instead, she drew a little ribbon from her breast, on which hung a plain gold ring, and gazing earnestly at this token, she remarked very quietly, Carlton, have you ever thought that but for this ring no proof remains in all this world of our ever having been married? But our hearts know it. Is that not enough? he asked. For today, yes, but when Uncle goes... His kisses finished the sentence for her, and love resumed its sway. But when alone and wakeful on her pillow, she recalled his look. The sting of her first doubt, 
darted through her uneasy heart, and feeling eagerly after the ring, she tore it from its ribbon and put it on her finger. "'It is my right,' she whispered. "'Henceforth I shall wear it. He loves me too well to quarrel with my decision. Now am I really his wife.'" End of Chapter 34 Part 1